What's up, everybody? Nate Lurie back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and the normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show. Everyone's is different. One by one, we're telling as many as we can while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. About three weeks ago, I got a message on the show's Facebook page from this lady. Basically, she said, Hey, I love the show, but you should talk to my son. He's got cerebral palsy and epilepsy, but he's a filmmaker. Interestingly, his name is also Nate. Nate Schrader, thank you for being the inspiration for this week's show. Thank you, and thank you for uh, having me. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I just started my uh, independent study for the summer, so. So are you still in school? Uh, graduate. Graduate school, okay. Yeah. Oh, right on. I go to uh, American University in D.C. Yeah. I guess you grew up in Chantilly, so I, it was interesting to hear that you guys were kind of local to me. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up mostly in Chantilly. Technically, I was born in uh, State College in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. near Penn State. Uh, then we moved to Bowie, Maryland for like a year or two, and then moved to Chantilly. Now, I learned a lot because of things that your mother sent me. One of them dated back to 2002. And that's where I learned the most about your disability. You know, I have spina bifida myself, and I know that these kinds of genetic disabilities, they kind of vary by person to person. So there are different levels of, for instance, spina bifida for me and like CP for you. But am I correct in saying that you can only really move one side of your body? Not quite. So it affects my left side. And so I don't really have much use of my left arm. And my uh, left leg is weakened. But I can still walk. Um, I can still do stuff. But it's just like, as you know, the cliche thing to say, it's like I just do it differently. Gotcha. Well, speaking of doing things differently, one of the things that the 2002 article said is that you played baseball back then? Uh, (laughs) uh, Technically, t-ball and coach pitch. Okay. That's uh, that's as far as I went. I'm not much of a sports guy. I played t-ball. I played coach pitch. I guess I wasn't really interested. Again, it's like now it's been like probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. Since then. <laughs> right. Um, but after those two scenes, I went into the Boy Scouts. That was my extra main extra uh, curriculum activity until high school. The problems that you have with the one side, because, for instance, you don't need to use a wheelchair or something like that, like I do, actually, are those problems easy for you to disguise from people? Or is it apparent to them, do you think? It's kind of both. Like, it's parents sometimes, and then other times, there are people that don't notice it whatsoever. Just depends on what you're doing, or? I guess it just depends what I'm doing. I mean, since, you know, I lived with CPL my life, I'm kind of just used to doing stuff with one hand and whatnot, so I only really ask for help if I absolutely need it. Well, speaking of doing things with one hand, give me an example of one or maybe a few things that were kind of difficult for you growing up that you kind of had to adapt 
your own way of doing. I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably tying my shoes. Mm -hmm. That took me a while to learn. I mean, I eventually learned how. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, to be honest, that it's kind of do it now. Right. I'm really thinking about it. But I do know riding a bike was an issue. And I remember going to the program or summer course or whatever for kids with disabilities, and they had this kind of tire that mm. made it like easier to balance. And as you progress through your skill, the tire gets thinner and thinner until you're basically riding a regular bike. And that's hmm. how I learned how to ride a bike. Uh, I rode the most part, at least as like a preteen, early teen days, like end of elementary school, begin uh, middle school. But then once I again, once I got to high school, the activities kind of changed. I didn't really need the bike that much, so I kind of just went back to like walking and you know getting rides from people. My parents driving me and whatnot. I think it was in the article from 2002. I read that you use some sort of adaptive equipment for certain things. I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But if that's the case, I don't know if you still use that sort of equipment. But if you have, have you noticed that it's sort of evolved over time? Or is it just that you've learned better how to do things for yourself? Probably a little bit of both. So it's two scenes to that. Okay. One, it's right out. You probably know more about the article than I do. Because <laughs> I well, haven't seen no, it. I just read it and it was about <laughs> you like 20 years ago. Yeah, I completely forgot there was an article until now. <laughs> like, I, I honestly, like, seeing that I came out when I was, what, like seven? That's what six, it said, yeah. Yeah, I probably didn't even read it, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but in terms of adjusted equipment, I remember I used to have like a team for cards where you stick the cards in when you're playing cards like Uno or poker or whatnot. When I used to drive before I was diagnosed with epilepsy, I had the uh, certified adaptive equipment for like the turn single or whatnot mm -hmm. and the little knob for turn steering. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those legally, I needed those to actually drive, obviously. Right. Again, it's, it's a mixture of both. I lived with this my entire life, so when I do things differently, I don't even think about it half the time. I just do this. <laughs> right. It's not like you learned one way and had to learn another way. You just yeah, learned one I, way. I learned one way, and I still ask for help, usually for, like, the big... So like, if there has, there's, like, this huge scene, I need, like, big box I need to carry, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't really do it with one hand due to this weight or its balance. I'm going to ask someone for help for that. Obviously. Sure. But... For regular tasks like tying my shoes, doing the dishes, not the best example, but walking, whatever, I, I just do it. <laughs> it doesn't really come to mind. I don't really think about it. And if I do, it's literally like just a split second. I mean, in order to think about something like that, I guess you have to be fundamentally aware of how other people do it. And if you're only used to one certain way that's different from other people... You don't really think about how they do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, I just don't think too much. Right. If I do, it doesn't really long stay in my brain for long. I'm just like, okay, it's just like I'll do it this way, whatever. So how did you get into filmmaking? Ironically, I was actually into the, the theater arts first. I went into high school with all my friends doing all different kinds of sports or whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. Like one person was in swimming, crew, football. 
later track. I was like, what the hell am I going to do? And I've noticed that on my schedule, I was in the beginning course for theater. So I decided when I found out, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a theater kid. Uh, they're kind of nerdy outsiders, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, later I found out that's not true, actually, at least for the school I grew up in. They were the preppy popular kids who ironically were the bullies of the school, if there are real bullies out there. So I got into that. I wanted to be an actor. No luck. Wasn't really casting much. And if I was, it's usually like the deformed character or whatnot, uh, which is both I kind of was fine with in um, at the time. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of indifferent to it now. But when I took the film studies course at my high school as an elective, I like being more in control of like projects, right? Mm-hmm. Filmmaking is a collaborative effort. Even if you don't get along with your classmates or whatever filmmaking class you're in, you can still make your own project on your own with your own crew and own collaborative effort. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I kind of fell in love with that idea. I left theater because there was too much drama going on behind the scenes. <laughs> Kids- drama and theater. Imagine that. I know. Imagine that. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> oh, the stories I can tell you about that. Well, tell um, one if you want. <laughs> no, it's just the theater program that I grew up on. They were very talented people from that program, right? There's some people who made on um, Broadway or the same level of Broadway for tours, right? Okay. There's one person named Kevin Clay was the lead in Book of Mormon when they were on tour, if I'm correct. They were talented people, but as a whole, it was very status-based. You were the hierarchy of students. So you had your stars, and then you had your secondary people, and then you had kind of the outsiders like me, who maybe not hated, but didn't really fit in either. I was a quirky little dude when I was a teenager. I don't think I really appreciated that aspect of myself until much later when I was older. Instead of going out and partying or whatnot, I stayed in and just watched movies just about every other weekend. I wasn't in, in crowds. I don't know how much, you know, drinking or drugs or actually were while I was in high school. But I decided to stay home and watch like films by like John Carpenter, Coppola, like Godfather, you know, classic films like that. My first raid our film was the matrix and i was like 10 oh wow. watch it with my dad i kind of grew up watching those films you know i was obsessed over like quentin tarantino like every other teenage boy who's into film that's was kind of more of my not i guess lack of a better phrase upbringing i guess i was like someone who leans towards more introvert i had i was more content to just staying in and just watching films and taking a break from people than like going out again after a long week of school. Now, going back a little bit, you said that in school, your friends were getting into sports, stuff maybe you couldn't do. And the way you said it, it made it sound like you got into theater, but it wasn't your idea. The summer before I started ninth grade, I had no idea what I was going to do. I was just like, what am I going to do? My friends are in like swimming, football, crew, whatever, right? And so I guess... Once I saw theater on my schedule, I thought, okay, I'll join the theater group and that'll be kind of the community I'm a part of in school. But that's the thing. You say you saw theater on your schedule. So 
Yeah. Was that not your choice? I would say it is my was my choice still because again I could have just taken it and just kind of like only took that one course and went on to do other stuff. Uh-huh. I saw like the stuff they were doing. I remember I went to one day after school. Uh, I went to one of their improv shows, and guys were getting like all this attention for like goofing off. You know, yeah. they weren't like big strong jocks or anything. They were just being funny. And was like, dang, I want to be like that. But again, I think film's a much better fit for me with my personality. One thing I do like about film is that I like it when people pay attention to what I do, not what I am. So I like it when they pay attention to the short film or the music video that I make and not me as a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You mentioned the hierarchy of the theater program and i'm wondering if that was sort of the impetus for you to decide maybe not to try to be an actor yeah i mean there was definitely like any theater program and any art program in general there was favoritism you're gonna find that anywhere and at the time at like a 17 18 year old not fitting in was like everything i wasn't bullied per se but I still didn't fit in. I was hardly ever invited to stuff. And I think that had an influence on my transition from theater to film. Because again, with film, it is a collaborative effort, but I can at least go my own way. Even if I didn't know it at the time, I think that was one of the factors that got me into it. As opposed to theater, you kind of have to depend on others. You have to depend on being cast. We did main stages, and it was like everyone was involved. You couldn't just do your own show. I mean, there's cabarets and whatnot, but still, you need to be chosen for it. As opposed to if I don't get into a showcase with my film, I can still put it up on YouTube or I can submit to other festivals. There was more alternative places I could go with that medium as opposed to theater. And speaking of festivals and the like, one of the links that your mother sent me was to your Vimeo. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I got to watch was this 15-minute film that you made that's won a few awards, as far as I know, called The Hermit. Ah, yes, my uh, senior capstone project, my mm-hmm. senior year of undergrad. That was a blast to make. There's definitely several scenes I would change now, obviously, but... Definitely, I would say, if we're just talking about the film itself, a huge influence over that was John Carpenter, George Romero. Those were probably the two biggest things. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to do a slasher film, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to just have, like, slutty teenagers, like in every other piece of that genre. What I did was that, okay, I'm going to have the Reservoir Dogs meet Friday the 13th. Ah, because I'm assuming you watched it, right? I did. Well, I watched it today. So, yeah. I mean, having said what you just did, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. After I graduated, I submitted to a few festivals. I think it got, like, the Bronze Award at the Horror Spotlight Film Festival of 2017. I think that's the name. <laughs> Probably not exactly. <laughs> it made a couple other festivals as well. But it's one of those things, like, the best thing for those type of films and this is my advice to any other filmmaker out there, just submit both big and small festivals. Mm-hmm. I mean, get, get your work out there. 
I don't want to say too much about it. I would want people to watch it, but this is a movie that your father was also in. Yes, he was. He played the hermit. Steve Schrader, even if you knew that name, you wouldn't recognize him from this role. <laughs> he was only really involved in like community theater. He was kind of the main stage combat director of our local theater troupe for X amount of years. So did him being involved in theater sort of influence you to maybe be interested in it or? Nope, it was the opposite. Really? Yeah. So I got into it and I used to fence. Okay. So once I got into theater, I started taking like stage combat courses and was got involved in a stage combat troupe that went around to Celtic festivals. They were called the Sterling Store Players. I would call them like kind of like an amateur martial artist. So he took courses at fencing and other martial arts and he was a wrestler in high school. So like he got involved in the stage combat troupe as well. And because of that, he became kind of one of the board members of their parent group, the Sterling Playmakers. Mm -hmm. Eventually he was the one to take over after our previous fight director left. I think he moved to Indiana or something like that. Not entirely sure. And he basically became the go-to guy for fights and productions for the playmakers. And so I was looking for someone to be the hermit. I was looking originally wanted someone kind of tall and broad, but I couldn't find one. And so I'm like, okay, screw it. Because he's probably going to be involved anyway. And the weapons, making sure the fights were safe. So I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, you know what? I'm going to have you be the hermit. And because as you see in the film, he's not necessarily like tall, but he's stocky. Which is what you want for that kind of role, either tall or, you know, just big in some yeah. way. So that's how it, that captain really came about. And just the others I just found through connections. The main character, the girl, was just another student from my college. And yeah, two of the students I went to see with the university. Uh, were roles, and then I got two others from the local Nova theater scene, scene hmm. like DMV area, and that's how I, the casting came to be. Now, I don't know if you've heard this, but I guess in recent months, there has been a lot of talk about studios consciously hiring more actors with legitimate disabilities. That apparently was something that NBC Universal says they're going to set out to do, but I would ask you, as a filmmaker who has a disability and wanted to be an actor at one time, obviously this didn't happen in The Hermit, but have you or have you thought about casting actors with disabilities for certain roles? In the fall, I wrote a script for class about like a one-handed gunslinger. Mm -hmm. And if I were to make that, I would think it would be cool to get someone with that kind of experience, even if he's not just like one hand, maybe he has like me underdeveloped uh, hand. Right. Personally, I always take those things for a grain of salt. I think there's, it's more for promotional reasons, but also they need to earn it first. First, get the right actor for the role. 
and then make sure they have the right disability, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, uh, you seen, have you seen or heard of A Quiet Place? Yes. Sequel coming out in a few weeks. The daughter in that's actually deaf, if I'm correct. I remember the deaf girl. I didn't know whether she was actually deaf. I could be wrong, but I believe the actress who plays the girl is actually deaf. I think you're actually right about that. That's like a positive example, right? Right. But, for example, Daredevil... More often than not, you're not going to be able to get a blind person to do all the stunts and fights. You can't get a real blind person, unless they're somehow really good at fighting, to be that kind of action star. It's the same kind of thing that I always say, you know, when talking about this particular subject. There are a lot of stories that are turned into films where someone gets disabled to the point where they're in a wheelchair and they work hard enough that they get out of it for whatever reason, right? So as much as I would like and my friends would like to see people in wheelchairs represented correctly, you can't really cast someone who uses a wheelchair all the time in that sort of role either. Yeah, and to be honest, like, as someone's disabilities, I don't think people should be chosen just for disabilities. Right. I mean, you probably agree with me. We won't be chosen because we earned it on merit alone, you know? Want to be chosen because like, people I know think I we're good, like, right? Yeah, exactly. You want to think we're good. Because I know if someone chooses me because of my disability, I would feel uncomfortable to a certain extent. And so that's why I think it should be merit first, and then it should be, like, representation. Let's go back to the quiet place for a second, right? Sure. You have to choose between two actors to play the deaf girl, right? Actress A, who's just most part normal, right? No disabilities. And person B, who's actually deaf, right? And if they're both about equal in quality, right? Mm-hmm. Pick the one who's deaf because the character's deaf. So it should be someone who's actually deaf. That would, I think, would be more nuanced as a character. Right. But if person A is just far superior, right? Leagues better. Then pick person B because they're just they're going to do the character have the better performance for the character. A quiet place is definitely an interesting example to use, but I think it's unique in that there's really no dialogue in that movie at all. Yeah, I mean, I would say depending on what you mean, because they do use sign language in it. Oh, that's true. Sa- so, sign I mean, language like, and subtitles, right? I forgot but about not that. Like, yeah, but like audible dialogue. Really. Right, right, right. It's been a couple of years since I've seen it, so. I wouldn't know about like how much of the film is silent versus actual like talking roundabout number, maybe like 60, 75% of it's silent or using sign language. Maybe I've seen it more recently, but I saw it maybe a few months ago. So not that I don't think I've seen it since it came out a couple of years ago. I just watched it on TV one day. So I mentioned at the top of the show that your mother told me, that not only do you have CP, but you have epilepsy? That is right, that is correct. And you mentioned that that had to be discovered along the way, right? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with epilepsy towards the end of 2017. I had a seizure in my apartment when I was at school, and my roommate witnessed it and called 911, etc. You know, I went to the hospital, oh yeah, you had a seizure, epilepsy... I would say living with epilepsy has been much tougher than living with cerebral palsy. I can believe that. Because with cerebral palsy, I lived with it all my life, so I'm kind of just used to it, right? Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to epilepsy, like, is kind of thrust upon me. Even though I do have it, I don't consider myself an authority on epilepsy. With my experiences, what's tougher is the side effects, whether it's epilepsy itself, the medication, or just the emotional toe it has. But, like, living with anxiety, mood swings, that's been the toughest part Mm -hmm. of living with epilepsy, not the seizures themselves. Anxiety can be common in a lot of things. Is is that a symptom of epilepsy? I've heard it could be. If my understanding is correct, again, I'm not an authority, so take it for a grain of salt. I will admit if I'm wrong. But people with epilepsy are more accessible to having anxiety and being irritable. And I have noticed when I did have epilepsy versus when I didn't, my anxiety was far worse. I would lash out far more during my early days. And again, that could just also be because of the medication as well. Those are the things that I really struggle with. Seizures itself is like, okay, I have a seizure. All right, am I safe? Did I injure myself? No? Okay. Now I just need like a day or so just to recover and I'm back on the track. But while I'm on the track with the loose wings and anxiety or whatnot, it's very hard because scenes that normally bother people would bother me. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a good example of this. What's a good example of like a little scene that like kind of gets on your nerves? Something little that gets on your nerves? Yeah, just something general, like generic. I mean, running out of something. Yeah, uh, I guess running out of something, getting your order wrong at a restaurant. Yeah. Something that's just like, oh man, but like not a huge deal. But like when I was still struggling with the medication and, you know, like trying to get a grasp on scenes, that's something that would make me very upset. So it became a bigger deal than it should have been. Yeah, it should. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that those are the things that was more of a struggle once I was diagnosed and once I was getting the medication to prevent the seizures. Is there any part of filmmaking itself that could be dangerous to you as an epileptic as far as lighting or anything like that? Not in terms of lighting because I'm not photogenic epilepsy. So, like, the flashing lights don't really bother me that much. Okay. It's more stress. There is some danger. Like, for example, this past semester we were working on a project, and I wasn't drinking enough water, and when I came home, I lied down and had a seizure. And I credit that to not drinking enough water. I contribute, at least to my epilepsy, from what I can tell, is caused by, again, stress whether it's, you know, physical stress or more emotional, mental stress. And so that's one reason why I went from doing like three classes in the fall to two classes this past spring. Because in the fall, I did have a seizure. It became too much. So I went down, I took uh, away a class so that way. I can handle the workload I had and I can do well at what the tasks I had to do. Taking it slow is sometimes better than taking on too much, you know? Yeah. So something I try to ask all the disabled people on the show, I get the sense, at least when you were younger, that, well, this whole article, which you don't remember, (laughs) was kind of about this, but this podcast is called We're the Inspiration just because of the fact that a lot of disabled people, including myself, find that we're called inspirations just out of thin air for no reason at all. 
So I don't know if you have an example of something like that happening to you. I'm just a source of inspiration just because I have this building, not because of what I actually just, did. Just, exactly. I mean, the more ridiculous, the better, honestly. Oh, oh geez. Uh, well, I, I know I have some examples of the opposite, but... Well, you um, can give that I, too, I but... Yeah. I mean, one time, if we're talking about the opposite, one time when I went for my permit before epilepsy, I believe if my memory serves me correct, the person at the DMV said my kind doesn't drive. And I do have to have examples of those kinds of comments throughout my life. I was called partially crippled during one production of Romeo and Juliet. That was interesting. Partially crippled. Um, yeah, partially crippled. Yeah, they need help like moving something. I'm like, oh, you need help? And like the guy next to me is like, oh, no, no, we don't. Probably not a good idea for a partially crippled person to do it. Ouch. Which then I walked up and like lifted it with my one hand with everyone else. So it's not so much that you're getting empty compliments. You're getting like open insults almost. Oh, no, I still get empty compliments though. I'm like, you know, Nate does so much with one hand. And it's like, I guess, like, I don't really think about it that much. Like I said, like, I like to be judged by what I do. Mm-hmm. Than rather about like who I am. That's just me personally. That's why I like films because like they can look at my product, the the, the video itself, and not necessarily look at what I am behind the camera. I can say in the little time we've spent here, I mean, you seem like a good dude, so that's cool. But you know, I've also seen some of your work, and that's good too. It's definitely hard work. Again, frustrating sometimes. You know, you don't get the attention you would like to have. Some of it's deserved. Uh, I feel like some of it's, you know, okay, you know, the person who's getting all the attention is definitely very good. So it's kind of like a bit of, still a bit of a mixed bag that I found in theater. But the more older I get, it's just like, you're going to find that almost everywhere, I feel like. And definitely with like the art communities can be very clicky at times. I am able to get along very well with my current, what they call cohort for the my fellow students. Mm-hmm. I am able to get along with them pretty well so far, luckily. So I'm grateful for that. I don't know if this is the right question to ask because you're still in grad school, but have there been people that have specifically wanted to check out your work because you have a disability? Not from my knowledge, luckily. I know I'm going to sound like a hypocrite for saying this, but can we just talk about how it's annoying to just be seeing a disability? But, you know, I'm at the point where it's like, I'm going to let people see my work. (laughs) Anything I can do to see their work, you know? I'm just getting started and still need to jumpstart my career, which is why I went back to grad school. Because after being diagnosed with epilepsy, I had to take a break almost. Whether or not I should have, I don't know. And that could have, but I was like, at one point was having seizures every couple weeks. Give me the timeline as far as like, does the hermit come out and wins a few awards and then, then you have start having the seizures or? I graduated in fall of 2017. Okay. But I went extra semester because I was having trouble balancing work the previous year. So I was a credit behind, but I made the hermit released it spring of 2017 online and was shown at our showcase 
submitted to festivals, and then did my final semester. And at the very end of that semester, around Thanksgiving, is when I discovered I had epilepsy. And I think around that time is when I started getting accepted to different festivals or whatnot. That's kind of the timeline for that. And because I needed a job that was more understanding, I took a job at the local rec center down the street okay. where my mom worked. The staff was there, was very understanding, very accommodating with my disabilities. Hebron rec center for anyone in the uh, Northern Virginia area, just right next to Westfield High School, which is the high school I went to. I think at that time, it was probably was the best call for me. But as I was getting more control over it in 2019, I was doing some projects here and there. I was discovering where it's like, oh, I don't really have the skills I need. So I decided to, you know what? I'm going to apply to grad school, try and learn the skills that I don't have yet or I've forgotten. So that's kind of my main goal of grad school. And if I get a job in the middle of my program, I am okay right now to put the education on hold to pursue that opportunity. My mindset for grad school is I'm here to learn the skills. I don't really care about grades too much. Heck, if I get, like I said, if I get a job in the middle of it, I'm more happy to drop my education right now on hold at least and then go for the job opportunity you being in grad school right now feels and i don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like it feels more like refining your skills and starting over yeah i also kind of fell back in love with screenwriting my focus in undergrad was writing right but i was more focused kind of more of the story structure and analytical aspects once I started writing again back in the fall, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, like I can move at my own pace for the most part. I don't need to worry about getting a ride to go to like locations, especially during this past year with 2020. I could theoretically, again, work from home and not put myself, quote unquote, danger. So since his name is also Nate, I'll just call him Schrader. And I never quite know how these shows will go when I'm just meeting the person. But Schrader and I are already talking about a part two where we just talk about movies. I don't know if anybody wants that, but we want it, so we'll do it. I want to thank him and his mom, because she's the one that told me about him. And thank everybody else for listening. Links to our Twitter, Facebook, and Discord will be in the description. And until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.